Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. Thanks for listening and remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Silicon Valley is busy crafting a future filled with drones, flying cars, and everything in between, but none of it will matter if consumers don't get on board. U.S. Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chao says consumer acceptance is, quote, the greatest constraint to growth when it comes to technology. While at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, Chow told Yahoo Finance Editor-in-Chief Andy Serwer and anchor Jen Rogers that she's learning more about how government can encourage technologies while mitigating security and safety concerns. So it's a really momentous time to be a transportation secretary, I have to say, because there is so much change going on with drones, the Hyperloop, driverless cars. How do you keep up to speed with all the things going on? Well, part of the policymaker's responsibility is to prepare for the future. And so while there may be differences as to when automated vehicles will come into everyday life, the reality is it's going to happen. So we at the department want to make sure that we are addressing legitimate concerns about safety, security, and privacy, while not hampering the growth and the innovation in this sector. Because as Americans, the innovation and the creativity that's occurring in this sector is part of our competitive advantage. So I've been here all week, uh, not all week, a day, actually, mm-hmm. in Davos, uh, talking with various groups about, um, you know, what is happening in this field of automated vehicles, be it drones or cars or transit or trucks or Hyperloop or, you know, so many other Flying cars were even talked about. Oh, really? Wow. All right. Well, that's exciting. So, you know, what is the future and what is the proper role of government? Um, uh, before we get to flying cars, I think we'll have the autonomous vehicles yes. on the ground. Right. And people are very interested in when that's going to happen. Uh, you have been not only at Davos this January, you have been at CES and you were also at the Detroit Auto Show. So there's sort of two different industries working on the driverless car. You've got tech and then we've got the automakers. Having been to both of these events, do you have a sense which industry they're is not in, in the lead? You don't they're think they're in competition. competition? So it's not a zero-sum game. It should not be a zero-sum game. Safety is not a zero-sum game. Security is not a zero-sum game, nor is privacy. I think the greatest constraints to growth for both these sectors will be consumer acceptance. Let me tell you why I am interested uh, in autonomous vehicles. I'm interested in safety. Ninety-four percent of accidents occur because of human error. If we are able to reduce that error rate or the reduce the role uh, that uh, humans play, we actually can reduce accidents and increase safety. Also, think about those who are um, Americans with disabilities, people who have disabilities, or the elderly uh, population. They are, one of the hardest things you can do is to take away the car keys mm-hmm. from someone, um, you know, who really should not be driving. So think of the freedom that would be given back, that would be given back to people with disabilities, the aging population, um, you know, on, with autonomous vehicles. So there's many benefits, but of course we need to watch out again that safety is not compromised, nor security, nor privacy.
Another important part of your purview, I suspect, is infrastructure and yes. contributing to the Trump administration's thinking on that. What is the latest there, Secretary Chow? Well, infrastructure was always, was always supposed to come after two other major issues, and one was health care, and the second was tax reform. Each took a bit longer uh, than we expected, so the third one coming up would be infrastructure. It will probably uh, be announced after the State of the Union, which is January 30th, so the um, announcement will probably come around uh, early February. Will there be new roads and airports and highways? It's going to be. Uh, we have already kind of been discussing with members of Congress uh, on major portions of it because this has to be a bipartisan effort. Infrastructure is important to everyone. And it's a wonderful vehicle for bringing both sides, all sides, together. So it will be a trillion dollars in spending and $200 billion in direct government funding. And we can't really afford more, because, number one, we don't have the money. And, number two, it really would create havoc if it was 100 percent, $1 trillion, 100 uh, percent government funding. But that is where the big uh, discussion will have to be. Who's going to pay for it? How is it going to be paid for? Our thinking is that, to leverage the $200 billion in government spending, we would ask the private sector, uh, state and local governments to come in and participate as well. And they'll get greater flexibility and greater autonomy um, as well in choosing the type of projects uh, that they would like. So, you know, we are very open to having a dialogue with the Congress. We understand that they have their preferences, and we are, again, very open to discussion with them. Another uh, discussion underway is over drones, another place where we yes. have innovation and safety coming together. I mean, everyone wants their package delivered by Amazon drone, but there are a lot of safety concerns out there. And privacy concerns as well. Certainly. What are you doing uh, on that front? Well, as I mentioned, you know, these are legitimate concerns. And for manufacturers, they need to address these issues. So I ask the uh, automobile manufacturers and Silicon Valley, you know, that they have to help people become more comfortable, because 74 percent of Americans do not like—well, uh, I shouldn't—that's too strong. 74 percent of Americans are anxious about autonomous vehicles. And if you use the word driverless, that actually pushes that anxiety factor up a bit more. So we say self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is going to be the greatest uh, constraint to their growth. But we want, again, you know, to uh, address these issues. We just had the hurricanes, Harvey, Irma and Maria. We had the wildfires in California and the floods. Um, there are conditions under which human beings should not be sent, for all sorts of reasons. And drones can perform a very valuable task. And so, it, in the hurricanes, we actually had drones fly over the devastated areas, taking pictures as to the state of infrastructure, so that we can begin to plan and know what to do. But I had to waive rules on that, yeah. because currently drones cannot fly over the heads of crowds and of people, and it has to be—drones have to be flown within the line of sight. So, to allow these drones to help us assess the damage in Puerto Rico, in Houston, uh, you know, we've had to waive those rules. And so we have a pilot project now, pilot program, in which we're going to ask—it's competitively bid 
and uh, 10, com 10 organizations will be selected to provide experience in testing of drones. And from those pilot programs, we will have better information on how to further, how to pursue the path forward right. in terms of drone regulations. The Trump administration has said it would like to see 3% sustained GDP growth. Well, billionaire private equity chief David Rubenstein thinks that's a lofty target. In fact, the co-founder of the Carlyle Group suspects we'll have a recession, quote, sometime soon. Yahoo Finance's editor-in-chief sat down with David Rubenstein at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. I'm here with David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group. David, good to see you. My pleasure to be here. So uh, earlier this week, I think you mentioned that you thought President Trump's and the Trump administration's target of GDP growth of 3% is unsustainable. Why do you think that is? I mean, we've got tax cuts, maybe an infrastructure program to jumpstart the economy. Why is 3% too high? First of all, I want to point out that my projections of GDP growth are invariably wrong. So uh, I would say that 3% growth is a challenging number to reach for an economy that's roughly $20 trillion. Obviously, I, as an American citizen, as an investor, would be thrilled if it happened, and I hope it does. But we don't know how to project 10 years into the future. It's very difficult. The budgets of the United States are 10-year projections now, and really projecting more than one or two years in advance is difficult. So if they can do 3%, I think it's great, and the tax cut will help them get there, but I just don't know if it's possible to get there for, three, for 10 years in a row. Fair enough. You know, a lot of people are saying people are optimistic here, too optimistic, too complacent, and they say, well, what could go wrong? I want to turn this on its head because you've been somewhat, I wouldn't say pessimistic, but um, measured in your analysis of the economy. So I want to ask you, David, what could go right? In other words, things seem really great right now. Everyone says the party's going to end at some point, but could the party continue and what would cause that? Well, the party could continue. Now, since World War II, we've had one period of time when we had economic growth of more than nine and a half years, and that was in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. We're now verging on that same kind of uh, uh, period of time. We've had economic growth uninterrupted since June of 2009 when the recession ended. So now, you know, we're going to be nine and a half, ten years. So maybe there's a new economic norm and maybe people can go 10, 15 years without a recession. But there's no history of going 100 years or 25 years without a recession. So I suspect we'll have a recession sometime soon, but it could be pushed out now by two or three years. I think the tax cut probably will push it out for another year or so. Okay. I know that um, you're a bit of a Fed watcher and we have a new Fed chair, Jay Powell. What do you expect from him, David? Well, I know Jay. Um, I hired him uh, when he was leaving government in the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. He had been uh, undersecretary, and he joined Carlisle. He's a very talented lawyer and investment banker, and he was at our firm for a number of years. I don't have any particular insights on what he's going to do, but uh, I got to work with him many years. He's a very honorable person, very smart, hardworking. So I suspect that he will probably continue along the lines of what Janet Yellen did, and have gradual increases. And I'd say most Fed watchers would probably say three to four 25 uh, basis point increases this year is likely. So the status quo is what you're looking for at this well, point? Well, the status quo mm -hmm. of, of basically what people project. Um, if all of a sudden um, the economy slows down, I suspect they might not do three or four. And the economy goes where we think it will be. It's likely based on what people think, and I, I guess I agree with that, probably three or four 25 basis point increases this year is probable. Okay. Um, you 
famously called the private equity cycle in 2006, 2007, saying it was a top, and in fact it was. Where are we now, David, in terms of private equity in the cycle? There's no doubt that uh, it's a great time to be in private equity. It's easier to raise money than it's ever been. Um, the values of companies are increasing fairly well. Uh, people are making a lot of money in the industry, and investors are doing quite well. So I can't say it's a top, but there's no doubt that it's, it can't get much better. Uh, right now, uh, everybody who's in private equity seems to be doing quite well. Now, investors are expecting somewhat lower rates of return from private equity than 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. So today, we can pay somewhat higher prices, get 15% net internal rates return as an industry average, and still please our investors. So I think the industry's got a couple more years to go before I see any kind of downturn. downturn. Um, are you satisfied with the performance of the Carlyle Group stock? And also, what is the shareholder proposition of Carlyle? I'm the biggest shareholder of Carlyle, so uh, I wish the stock would do much better. We went public uh, in uh, May of 2012 at $22 a share. Today, we're roughly at $25 a share. So we paid out billions of dollars in dividends, but still the stock hasn't gone up as much as I would like. I think that's because we earn so much in carried interest, and carried interest isn't appealing to a lot of people that buy our stocks. It's also a uh, uh, partnership. Partnerships are not able to be in index uh, funds. So for those reasons, none of the private equity firms have done all that well compared to what you, you would think they would do. Uh, remember, we have the best deal doers in the world, and yet they haven't done a wonderful deal on their own stocks. Uh, but the stocks have been very good dividend plays for everybody. Uh, all of my peers have been uh, producing a lot of dividends. So I wish the stock would go up. I hope it will go up. The our firm is in very, very good shape, and I suspect we're going to have a very, very good year. But, you know, I can't project where the stock market's going to go. So you mentioned carried interest. I have to ask you that I didn't question. I mention carried interest. You mentioned carried okay, interest. Okay, well, I am now. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll ask you the question about tax and carried interest. And, okay. and it, it, every... A uh, year or so it comes up and then it never seems to uh, go into effect, a tax, tax on it. What's well, your take on that? Well, remember, uh, carried interest has been around for 30, 40, 50 years. It was started in the energy industry, went to the real estate industry, the venture capital, and private equity. Private equity pays a relatively small percentage of the overall carried interest taxation that's paid. It's, the real estate industry probably pays 50 or 60 percent of it. But it doesn't pick up that much revenue overall, and so I think the congressional uh, tax writers didn't see it as a big revenue gainer, and they didn't do that much on it. But they did extend it for three years. So today, you have to, uh, to get a carried interest treatment, you have to hold on to an asset for three years. Now, I think that's uh, you know, something that uh, you know, maybe makes some sense. I don't think it's going to adversely affect the industry, but I think the most important thing to remember about private equity and carried interest taxation is that the industry is centered in the United States. Venture capital and private equity are centered in the United States. It's been a great industry for our country, and I don't think we should change the rules unduly uh, and maybe upset you know, the great leadership the United States has in that industry. David, you are running Carlisle, or co-running it at this point. Um, you do so much philanthropic work. You have a television show on Bloomberg. Um, you do more than just about anyone here at Davos, I think, which is saying something. How do you decide what to do when you get up in the morning? First, I want to point out that I'm now the co-executive chair of Carlisle with Bill Conway. I'm right. not running it day to day. Okay. Uh, that's being done by Glenn Youngkin and uh, Hugh Song Lee, and they're very, very good uh, people who have been with us for a number of years. Um, I don't play golf. That saves a lot of time. I don't drink alcohol. That saves a lot of time. And um, everything I'm doing, I love doing. I'm not doing anything I don't want to do. So when you're doing something you love, it's not work. 
So I love Carlisle. I love the nonprofit boards that I chair. I chair the Kennedy Center Board, the Smithsonian Board, Council on Foreign Relations Board, the Library of Congress Board. I love all those institutions. I have a philanthropic uh, life, and I, I love giving away the money to causes that I think are very important. A lot of it is patriotic philanthropy. And uh, my Bloomberg show is, you know, fun. It's not something that's probably going to change television as we know it, but I enjoy it and seem to have a good reception. All right, you're a busy guy, so thanks so much for coming by. David Rubenstein of the Carlisle Group. Thanks My pleasure. Not as busy as you. No, that's not true, but thank you. And thanks for listening to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. Be sure to rate, review, and share this podcast. And remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode.